0: Welcome to the show.
1: I think about it and I can, my whole body is flooded with just shame. I just, I feel literally mortified because I must, I must have looked terrible and I must have smelt. And I just think, you know, I remember how much I drunk the night before being out with friends and I must have just looked and seemed awful and it's mortifying.
0: Welcome everyone to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. I'm very excited today. We've got Anita Cassidy on the line. She is a writer as well as the co-founder of the only conscious relationship community. I've attended one of her events. They're great just for thinking outside the box as far as relationships and how we approach them. Uh, Her debut novel, Appetite, a story about marriage, adultery... Sugar and Change was published in January 2018, and she's currently working on two books. She is an extremely busy lady with lots of change going on. Welcome to the show, Anita. Hi, Petra. Thanks for coming. Um, So give us just a little bit of context about the the work that you do and, and what you're passionate about at the moment in life.
1: I'm passionate about sharing stories. I think having published the book this year, I really, I really realized the power of stories to really help people think about their own lives
0: and to think about what's possible for themselves. Were you, did you always want to be a writer or was, did you always have that sense of having had a book in you?
1: people ask me that. I started writing as a teenager. I I mean, I read a lot as a teenager and in my preteens. And I was encouraged to do some writing by my English teachers at secondary school. I was given a computer to take home. And I remember writing a couple of stories and, you know, again, being encouraged by what they said. But then teenage life took over. You know, I discovered going out. I discovered my friends. And I just... You know, life kind of took over, and I didn't write at all in my 20s, apart from things I was writing for work um, in the recruitment advertising industry. Okay. And then when the children were small, I had um, I have two children, and when they were small, I began working with the NCT and started writing a couple of articles about family and about parenting. And I, I ended up starting a blog, and that blog became me signing up for Nano NaNoWriMo, which is the National Novel Writing Month. Okay. where yeah. people write 50,000 words in 30 days, um, which is a fantastic experience, and I started that in 2012, so I've only really been writing for five, six years.
0: Yeah, okay, so it's it's become your form of expression, and I guess in these days, you, it can be a blog, it doesn't have to be a book in order to do the story
1: thing. Yeah. and I think blogs the blog for me was a really powerful first step to kind of learning to polish and share content and share stories and share ideas and I found with the fiction that I was only really writing in November for a couple of years. I only really found the time in November because the children were small and life was kind of demanding enough. But then I committed in 2014, I committed to writing every day. And I think that commitment, even if it was 500 words, you know, a couple of words at a time, that commitment to doing something every day really kind of pushed my writing on. And it was in 2014, 2015 that I found an editor to have a look at what was in those days called Food Fight, yeah. and which is up becoming appetite and was published this year.
0: So exciting! Um, and so I know you live uh, just a very busy, diverse, interesting life, and there's so many rabbit holes that we, we could go down. Um, but give us a little bit of. Let's. I want to get into your story, and you know what has made Anita Anita, you know, the writer and and the co-founder, and and having a voice on so many topics. Um, give us a bit of context just about growing up. What was that like? Do you feel like Your parents, the education system kind of set you up for what the real world was going to be like.
1: I I had an unusual childhood in that my dad was in the RAF, and I went to six different schools between the ages of six and 11. Um, My father was constantly being promoted. He worked very hard, and we were so moved around a lot. And I think I had a narrative about that as a teenager and a 20-something that was very much... This taught me to be independent, this was good for me, and I really kind of clung to that. And it was only really in my late 30s when I made some other changes that I started to realise that maybe actually that hadn't been as positive an experience as I thought it was. Certainly with changing schools, I've changed my children have changed schools recently, and it's taken them a year of processing to let go of their old friends, to, to process that heart upset around change and loss. And watching them go through that and thinking to myself, actually, do you know what I would have done? I would have gone through something similar every single year for like five years in a row. Yeah. And it, it really hit me that actually maybe that wasn't as positive an experience as I thought it was. And maybe this idea of myself as very independent
0: was actually a layer covering something else. I resonate with that so much just because I moved uh, every year of my life pretty pretty much as well. I mean, what would you say were the less positive kind of impacts on you of that sort of time?
1: I, I think it it wasn't – it was not having the space to talk about how I felt. You know, what I've done with my children now because I'm a bit more aware is – Give them space and time to talk about how they're feeling, mourn the losses. You know, talk about how we can make sure they keep in touch with their friends. But I think for me at the time, my parents were our lovely people. My father unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. My mum's a wonderful person. But what they were never able to do for me was give me that space to talk about how I felt. And I think what they ended up doing was just ignoring or pushing down a lot of that discomfort and upset about the change. And I didn't have a place to talk about it. And one of the big parts of writing Appetite for me was realizing how much of my story was kind of hidden in those words and hidden in those pages. It was the editing process that really made me see just how much of myself... Was in those was in those characters I can um,
0: imagine because what you're what, that, that visual of you you say it's sort of pushing down feelings and, and ideas and and then the question is like where does that stuff go right and how does it end up coming out whether it's through acting out or maybe some of the themes that were coming up from your book
1: yeah I mean I think for me I again, as a young woman growing up in the 80s and 90s, I very much was socialized to be the good girl. You know, I studied hard. I worked hard. Yeah. I didn't act out. You know, I don't, I had the odd kind of premenstrual sort of tantrum with my mom, I remember. But, you know, ultimately, I was a good girl. You know, I got straight A's. I went to university. I got my two one. I moved to London. And I did all these things. I ticked all those boxes. And I... What was happening in the background, and which I only really started to see when I made a pair of changes in terms of stopping drinking, but also writing the book. The book was very much about food and sugar. And I realized writing that story just how much I've been using sugar and sweets as a comfort for myself, and how actually, as I looked at that even further, you know, alcohol is essentially sugar. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What I realized as I graduated from comfort eating as a teenager. Now, the scene in Appetite where Dave is hiding in the toilet, eating sweets and drinking soft drinks. That was me as a teenager. You know, I used to hide. I hid in the
0: bathrooms at school and ate chocolate bars. You know, I hid in my room and ate sweets. And so there's so there's some kind of shame connected to that hiding bit, right?
1: Hiding away, not being able, a very real sense of not being able to talk about how I felt and not having the space and the safety to talk about how I felt. So very much kind of hiding that away and dealing with it on my own in private and finding comfort finding comfort on my own in private. And in my twenties that graduated very much from chocolate bars to glass of wine.
0: Yeah, and it's almost a self-harm thing in in the sense of there's a small relief in, in you know, people think of more extreme self-harming behaviors like cutting and that sort of thing. But but the eating, like it, it's you're not doing it from a place of, oh I enjoy the taste or I enjoy let me just really enjoy this wonderful chocolate bar it's like like, some cheap shit (laughs) Uh,
1: there's no savoring there's no savoring there's no enjoyment it's very much just about I want to feel better and this is going to make me feel better but that's all happening on a very unconscious level of course I think you know the writing I think writing and creativity and and also any sort of therapy really is very much about starting to make conscious those kind of unconscious things yeah that's, that's what I did with the writing really was to basically make conscious, these things that I've been doing without really realizing.
0: And so, and it's another healthier way of release. So creating space to put thoughts and words and put, give value to them, even if it is through other characters.
1: Oh, definitely. And I think, um, you know, creating a story helps you make sense of things. And I find that even with the nonfiction writing that I do, it's very much about ordering thoughts and about saying, here are some feelings, here are some thoughts, how can I make sense of those? Um, and also find out things, you know, reading books like we talked about um, previously, bethel Kolk about trauma, yeah. the body keeps the score, the ways in which by identifying and understanding the way the brain works, the way the body works, what I found is that I really understand those instinctive mechanisms, you know, those kind of you know, negative bias in the brain, confirmation bias, the ways in which our brain and our bodies try to, you know, hold things together and to make sense of things. And new, use a new stories understanding to really challenge that and to think actually, yes, I think this, but actually how real is that? How real is that based on what's happening right now and how much of this is just an instinctive kind of brain snap and how much of it is is true?
0: Absolutely. And, it, and obviously you're talking from your, your adult self-aware self that has learned some of this stuff the hard way and has um, for, you know, put yourself in positions to, to understand yourself better in order to relieve the suffering in a different way um so so just jump back to this this theme of of, of adversity and um how your childhood sort of led you to a point of uh, upgrading so to speak to to alcohol and uh you know other ways that this was kind of um creeping out in a way like what what do you identify with in that theme of adversity
1: i think I kind of sped through my twenties in a haze of drinking and perfectionism, and I think all the anxiety and upset and sadness and also anger that I'd felt about change that I hadn't been in control of, and about the lack of emotional support and an emotional connection that I'd had from my family and people around me growing up, all of that. And I'm doing this again. I find myself doing this. I'm you kind of I, you, I squashed it all down. Yeah. I, I moved too fast. I mean, I literally I went from moving schools every year to literally moving home in London every year. I've lived in about ten different places in London, yeah. and most of those were between the ages of kind of like twenty one and, and thirty. I just kept moving. It was a bit like if I keep moving and if I'm good enough, I'm perfect enough. I do my job and I do this and I do that. Then nothing can touch me, and I can't get hurt by things.
0: And, and it's another way of uh, not sitting with the discomfort, right? So as yeah. soon as you feel it, you can be like, let me just change the outside.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I just, it was, if I was sitting still, I was drinking. Sure. And if I wasn't sitting still, I was moving too fast. You know, I got promoted. I was managing a team of eight people, age 24. I was responsible for the biggest revenue stream at, you know, kind of the national sales house I worked for, for Trinity Mirror. You know, I was ticking all these successful young professional woman boxes. Um, but I was also, you know, drinking almost every day and... What people weren't seeing was me being sick before I went to work, me overdoing it at parties that meant I was going home and making myself sick. And, again, that whole kind of – it's something I've experienced as a teenager. You know, I'd made myself – I'd binge on sweets in my room. I'd binge on sweets with friends. I'd make myself ill. I'd hide food. It was all about hiding. It was all about hiding and basically in the background I was doing all these things that I just – I never connected with the kind of the emptiness and the lack of space and the lack of connection and comfort that I'd had as a child. I just, I thought, you know, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can do this because it looked great. You know, so, well,
0: of- yeah. And I'm thinking of if you, as a one. I'm just, everything looked great yeah. as a
1: woman succeeding at life.
0: Yeah. As and so people the- listening would be like, that, that sounds cool to me, like a bit of glamour, London life, you know, working successful was, jobs. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it looked great. It looked great, but it was all... Surface.
1: Yeah. And it was perfectionism. Surface. Absolutely. And it was all about, you know, never really just watching. It's interesting to think about having people to talk to and sharing our feelings, but I didn't know I had feelings, and that oh, could sound really silly, um, but I was so disconnected from my body and myself. I'd never been taught to think about how I feel and why I feel that way. That I just I didn't know I had them. And When I did have them, they alarmed me. I think on a subconscious level, and I just would have been big. Yeah, and I just I think the drinking was my way of avoiding that. And you know that it's something that I'd learned from from growing up that this is you know drinking's fun and that you do this and you do that, and it's very reinforced socially as well. Totally that alcohol is, you know, a fun thing to do. And it was fun until, you know, five glasses of wine in and I'm staggering home and I'm thinking, well, if I need to go to work tomorrow, then I probably need to get this stuff out of my system and I'm just ill again, you know, but no one ever saw that.
0: No, and so I can really feel the cycle of of hiding, of shame, not even being able to identify it as shame, but just the perfectionism, you know, uh, hamster wheel.
1: Yeah, and I think... It's interesting to me now how little I recognize what I was doing. I mean, I did, I was aware that I was drinking too much. But interestingly, you know, I, no one ever spoke to me about it.
0: So, no, there was, you didn't feel reflected in other people that that there was a problem.
1: No sense of... Being seen as someone that had that problem, I think the, the work environment I was in, drinking heavily was very, very normal and almost encouraged. It was sales; everyone's living the high life. Um, and even when, even when my father was diagnosed with liver disease when I was about twenty six, um, I didn't see it. I didn't see the connection between him and his heavy drinking and it making him seriously unwell, and my own drinking. I just, I didn't see it. And I'm, I'm curious now as to why I didn't see it or whether I was seeing it on one level and just ignoring it. But I just, I genuinely didn't see it.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you didn't have the tools to, to be self-aware, to recognize sort of any of these things as being a problem. And if you're, not, if you're not having open conversations, you think this might be normal. Like other, this is just what life is like.
1: Again, it's what I think about when I think about what's happened in my changes in relationships is um, we don't know what we don't know. You know, it's that sense of we just don't know those things. Um, you know, I'm operating a relationship framework now that I didn't even know existed five years ago. And now I, I run a community that supports people doing that, you know, consciously engaging in relationships with no expectations. But I literally, the word polyamory, I didn't even know that word. I didn't even know the word five years ago. So it's a bit like how could I ever have imagined being here now if I didn't even know those words existed? Right. And I, you're right, the tools I didn't know I didn't know what I was – I didn't know how to do those things. I didn't know how to think for myself, feel for myself. It took – I think it took the big change of leaving London to have a family when I hit 30 and got married. Um, It took having that enforced break from drinking through two pregnancies to really start making me think, you know, what am I doing? And, you know, it's – we look – as a writer, one wants to see – kind of a, a, a narrative you know a story arc that basically says and then she discovered this or then there this yeah. yeah. moment and actually I do it in the um, in the novel as well this idea that actually there is no one point in time there is no one point in time but I think for me when I look back on my early 30s what I do see is a series of moments that I started to join the dots in between being hung over at my son's nursery Christmas play. Sure. You know, yeah. being so being so hungover and so sick that I wanted to be literally I wanted to vomit watching my son sing jingle bells, which was I think about it and I can my whole body is flooded with just shame. I just I feel mm. literally mortified because I must I must have looked terrible and I must have smelt and I just think, you know, I remember how much I drunk the night before, being out with friends, and I must have just looked and seemed awful. Um, but that didn't stop me, because I just I just remember going to bed at 5 p.m. with my I remember putting my bed putting my son to bed that day at literally 5 p.m. and just going to bed myself. And then within a couple of days, the cycle has started again. It was only really when my daughter was two, I think two or three. And I had one week, and I was writing then as well. I was writing, so we're looking at 2014. And I think the writing was, I was starting to make sense of things through story myself. But I wrote down how much I drank in a week, Um, and it was it was yeah, it was over sixty units. Um, and this was like a normal week for me. Yeah, and oh, and. Having children's really really hard work. I mean, they're a glorious, they're wonderful, but it's one thing going to work and kind of pushing some paper around for eight hours with a bit of a hangover. But Tell trying trying to look after two kids with a hangover, I got to the point where I'm like, I can't do this anymore. I yeah. can't do this anymore. So there wasn't a rock bottom. There was moments in time, and I think I just started looking back and thinking, I. I don't want to keep feeling like this.
0: So tell me about that. How did you feel about yourself in those in that time?
1: I think writing down the number of units, I think really seeing it on paper and just thinking this isn't I don't I don't think I said to myself this isn't going nothing will change. I can't really I wish I could pinpoint it. I wish I had a neat story, but I just I just got fed, I just got fed up with myself. I yeah. think it's a bit like do you know what I'm just fed up with myself being like this. I don't remember thinking about my dad. I don't remember thinking about anything really. I just remember feeling really bloody fed up.
0: And you it. and and was anxiety showing up?
1: Um I think so. Do you know, I wouldn't even have known what anxiety, what feeling anxiety was back then. Sure. I was so out of touch with myself and how my emotions were experienced in my body that I wouldn't have noticed. I, I would have been, and I know my, I know thinking back, you know, I was permanently irritable and impatient and stroppy. I was, you no know, very loving and very, you know, lovely to my children and, but I was also impatient, irritable. Unhappy. And just, unha- yeah, I mean, but again, I didn't it was it's difficult to look back and think actually how did I not know but I just didn't because all those things have been so normal for so long yeah I didn't realize and, and what did
0: sorry I was just wondering if uh, other people your your boyfriend husband like if, if it started um sh- showing up in other people's eyes if you know what I mean as far as that it was becoming a problem
1: no one ever talked to me about my drinking.
0: Isn't it incredible?
1: It's really interesting, actually. It's really interesting. And it's something that I've only really realized recently. It's a bit like, wow, actually, no one talked to me about that. Um, I think I would talk about cutting back, but sure. it was never taken very seriously by me or anyone else, really. You know, Mark would – my ex-husband would always do a month off every year. Um, and I would be like – you know that's a waste of time. You know, I will just I managed it. I just tried to manage it, and I think one of the things I read recently was very much like if you, the minute you start putting rules around drinking, that's usually when you've got the start of a problem. And I think for me, I just found that I was thinking about it all the time. Well, I just have one, or I just have two, but never more than three, yeah. and only these days, and not those days. And I make sure I drink plenty of water. And I was just up in this cycle. And I think what I found when I stopped drinking, I. I ordered a I ordered a book off the internet called Kick the Drink Easily by Jason Vale. He's a, he's a well-known guy that does the the juicing and kind of the wellness stuff. And he's an interesting character. I've got mixed feelings about him generally. But the book, <laughs> I ordered the book. Um, I read the book. And it's a bit like the Alan Carr smoking thing. You know, you drink while you're reading. And he basically takes every single reason why you drink and basically knocks it down like a skittle. And I think... I read it with literally no expectations at all. I just ordered it, read it. I knew I needed to do something different. Um, and reading was reading books was usually the way I figured stuff out, you know, reading, thinking. And I, dr- I remember drinking red wine on and off while I was reading this book. It's about 200 pages long. And I remember finishing it on a Sunday evening and turning to Mark and saying, I'm never drinking again. And he was like, really? And I'm like, yes. And I started laughing, Yeah. and I, literally, I felt so liberated. And I did, I've did. i never looked back. He read really? the book too. Yeah, he read the book too. And I just, people people ask me that first couple of years, people are just, do you miss it? Do you miss it? I'm like, do you know what, no. No. I just, it was the liberation from thinking about the bloody stuff all the time. Right. This can I have it today? Can I have it tomorrow? I have this, I'll have that. I just it was so liberating to have my mind back.
0: And did you just do this based on the book? Did you end up joining recovery communities? Did you
1: no, I didn't actually. I mean I was very I was still quite isolated. I was living in Kent still, the children were still I mean gosh, my daughter would have been only three, I think. So I was still very much caught in the kind of preschool toddler stage with my children. I I never talked to anyone about my experience of drinking prior to reading the book. I I just stopped drinking and told people that I stopped drinking and I would talk about having read the book and this is why I'm not drinking anymore. Sure. Interestingly, most people didn't want to know why I'd stopped drinking. Right. Most people just felt very threatened by the fact that I stopped drinking and a bit like the changes with my relationship framework and ending my marriage. And, and being polyamorous now people don't ask I think it just you know it just taps into stuff that's too difficult for some people and I get it because it would have been too difficult for me
0: sure oh. yeah it's, a, it's sometimes a timing thing and so uh, I, I can see the contrast between those early days and and you quit drinking but you still have little ones you're still in a bit of a cycle you still haven't got much um, awareness or, or ideas about feelings or processing or who do I want to be or all that stuff. And, and knowing you a, a bit now, you're all about conscious community, self-awareness, authenticity, vulnerability, all those beautiful qualities that uh, some of us are working quite hard to, to move towards. Um, so talk me through the middle bit, because I know that taking alcohol away can sometimes just mean we find something else shopping, Absolutely. sex, Netflix, okay. whatever, to, to, to kind yeah. of get the comfort that we were talking about, but familiarity, yes, yes. And so how do you, how did you move from that sort of, I still f- feel like it's a rock bottom point. It's like a turning point, even though it's not one defining moment Absolutely. That, Absolutely. that you began on this, this sort of journey. So I'm curious about that, that middle bit, what were the things you started to do? Did you start talking to people? How did you carry on this kind of journey that, that you're on today?
1: I think that first couple of years of being sober, um, because Mark was going through the same thing, I don't think we talked about anything else for 12, 18 months. Right. It was very much about, oh, my God, I feel so much better. And just the, this social experience of being sober in a world where most people really aren't. Yeah. Um, and I think... It was very much about navigating my family and my friendships, having changed a lot and having let go of something that most people didn't want to admit they were clinging on to too tightly themselves. So I spent that first couple of years you know, looking after the kids, basically reading and writing more. I got And I got my time back. Yeah. Um, so what I found is that I, I had a lot more time. The writing really kicked off as well. I found that I was, you know, after a couple of months, you know, you realize that you're not tired anymore. You realize that actually you feel pretty good. I think I was lucky in that I was cooking for the children a lot. So I didn't, I might have, I I went through a phase of drinking a lot of Diet Coke and I went through a phase of maybe eating a few more sweets. But I also started exercising and I think that helped. I basically found, you know, I discovered Gillian Michaels DVDs and I started working out and I started writing a bit more and it seemed like just me getting healthier. Basically. Um, and I lost touch. I did lose touch with some friends and I think I was very much, it got to like 2015 and I'm a bit like, actually, do you know what? I need some new friends. Um, and I was starting to really feel the loneliness and the isolation from living in a suburban town where, you know, people are very much caught up with looking a certain way, being a certain way, and hiding the pain and the anxiety and the anger and the upset, hiding that all the way behind closed doors, um, and you know, drinking and watching TV and, and buying nice handbags and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I really felt the isolation, I think, around 2015. And that's where I, just, I started. I discovered music okay. for me. I'd always been into music as a teenager. You know, I'd been obsessed with Bowie and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. And I'd always been into sort of unusual stuff, pavement, Genesis. And so I, I heard Jake Bug and I, I discovered some music and I thought, you know what, I want to start seeing some music again. So I basically, I started going out, um, I started going out to gigs and i kind of rediscovered the love of kind of music and live music and dancing and... Kind of, it was a reason to get out of the house as well because I was increasingly aware that actually I needed something other than the children and something other than that. Yeah, and starting to go out, I kind of started getting in touch with my old self. I think the self that the self probably in my mid 20s where I wasn't drinking too heavily but I was kind of fun and enthusiastic and engaged. And that's when I started also realizing that maybe I didn't feel quite as excited about my relationship with my husband as I thought. And that was where the really big change came next, because having, having sat in a lot drinking, having sat around a lot watching TV, and all of a sudden I don't want to do those things anymore, all of a sudden I want to go out, all of a sudden I want to kind of be reading and meeting people. Experimenting with new ideas. I kind of I just rediscovered this youthful energy this curiosity about life that I just I hadn't had for a long time and that's when I started questioning how I felt about other things
0: and so, obviously, I think all the listeners would be will be curious about what that conversation looks like, or what that transition from uh, a normal sort of um, unit of a family and and what all that looks like, with pe- what people supposedly aspire to, to be, and then the feelings of something different, and uh, you know, where how do you t- where do you take that? How do you trust that that's okay?
1: Absolutely, I think we have to. I really didn't know what I was doing when I decided to talk to Mark about how we might make some changes. I think stopping drinking and rediscovering my passions, rediscovering writing, rediscovering reading, rediscovering music and the kind of energy that comes from kind of shared community experiences like being out and experiencing live music. I just I started wondering what the rest of my life would look like. And I I loved Mark to pieces and I loved my life. I felt very lucky. You know, I had, like you said, I had so much of what people aspired to. I had the lovely home. I had the children. Yeah. I was at home, you know, getting to indulge my hobby as well as, you know, looking after my family. Um, but I, I was starting to realize that maybe I needed something else. And that's where I started to realize that maybe Mark and I weren't communicating as well as I thought because actually – The drinking and the sitting, watching TV have been a bit of a cover for us not really talking. Um, I think there have been a lot of things we haven't talked about.
0: Can I Um, just pause you there? Because that must apply to so many people. The idea of the the habits around um, drinking or TV or whatever, the things that you do hovering over. yeah, Yeah. Yeah
1: being a very easy way of being comfortable
0: and familiar and habitual
1: and not really looking at what's underneath
0: and talking about the uncomfortable stuff that might force you to evolve.
1: Yeah, because actually I think we've all got that will to, the will to evolve, the will to change, but it's a a whisper, it's not a shout and I think we really have to, we have to, it's very hard really to listen to that sometimes, especially when it's telling you something that maybe you don't want to hear and I think for a, a couple of years I was hearing a whisper that maybe things weren't right with Mark and I, but I really didn't want to hear it.
0: No, because you know? it's difficult.
1: And, and Yeah, because and I, I loved him. You know, I didn't I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to hear that I wasn't happy. Yeah. It's a bit like, well, I should be. Why aren't I? Yeah. And I just, you know, I exercised a bit harder.
0: Yeah. And I so there's bit, something wrong with you.
1: Yeah, I just, yeah, I basically assumed there was something wrong with me and not something wrong with the relationship I had.
0: Thus, yeah. And,
1: yeah, it was... It's really hard. I think that's what so much of these conversations around change. They, it's just so easy to wash over the fact that it's really hard. You know, it's really hard.
0: And it's, it's not just the one decision hard. It's the once you open the box, then it's consistent yeah. vulnerability, authenticity, challenge, self awareness. Like you got to look at yourself as well as the situation.
1: Yeah. And and how how to manage that over again and again and again because there's the conversation with Mark that goes the idea of it just being me and you for the next 40 years I can't do that anymore so there's that conversation and then there's the conversation about what happens next and there's it was all difficult sure you know and every single conversation and it was also wonderful because it brought us so much closer and we understood ourselves so much better but to unravel a marriage together in that way was just devastatingly hard in a way that I just just don't know if I could have done it if I'd known how difficult it was
0: going to be and that's sometimes probably a good thing
1: now I can feel it bubbling up I can feel the stuff that I still haven't worked through coming up because it was just cripplingly hard and there were so many wonderful moments you know sitting there on our 10th wedding anniversary talking about the fact that we weren't going to stay together but talking about what we'd create instead and just saying to each other let's create a relationship as co-parents and friends that is the envy of our married friends let's let's do that and that that was a wonderful moment but we're still having to work hard at doing that now. I mean, it's hard. You know, it's not easy. It's not easy to maintain a friendship when you've you've kind of been through what we went through together, you know, breaking up our family, basically, um, and dealing with the criticism from everyone around us about why that was happening, um... But, you
0: know, so much learning. So, well, so much learning. And I've been through it myself and I co-parent and have come through the other side of living 10 minutes away from my ex. And they live 50% with him and me. And we're spending Christmas morning together. We just spent, you know, my son's 15th birthday with my ex's girlfriend and, you know, like all together. And so... Um, And and it feels really good. But my fucking God, the last two years of getting there and trying to put aside ego and put forward self-awareness and think what's best for the kids. And how do we communicate from that perspective?
1: Yeah. And to be compassionate with each other and to forgive each other's mistakes and to, to be empathetic with each other, but also to. To understand that, yes, there might be things that he won't look at, but there are things that I won't look at as well. And actually to be kind and gentle and not have an argument over the phone on a Friday morning about who's going to be off because they're sick and who's picking them up from so-and-so, which, you know, I did last Friday. It's like, well, just it's still hard, but I notice every time, every week that goes by, every month that goes by, I get better at seeing him for the wonderful man that I married, 10 years ago and for the wonderful father of my children. And I let go of the disappointment and the sadness around that relationship not going as
0: I hoped. And such a painful ongoing process.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the thing it is. And that's where, I
0: mean, I write a lot at the moment about conscious
1: self care and about, it's not just that whole kind of Netflix pizza. Let's all binge around in our pajamas kind of self care, but that really kind of reflective, calm, calm, sitting with difficult feelings and learning just to kind of be present and be still with the really shitty stuff. Um, It's ongoing, right? It is. It is ongoing. And I think that can sound a bit bleak, but actually every time I sit through it, and I went through it at the weekend, you know, I felt sad. I realized that actually the home that Mark and I lived in when we got married is literally a 15-minute walk away from where I live on my own with my kids now. And it really struck me that how could I possibly imagine being here now when I lived with him? And we got, we literally got engaged in a curry house that used to be on the road. That's a 15 minute walk away from where I now live on my own. And it just really hit me. Just really
0: hit me. And and it's almost like grief, right? The stages where there's, you can be fine. And then moments just kind of.
1: Exactly. Again, it's not linear. It's not like I'm going to sit and deal with my grief and then I'm fine. It's like, no, it goes, it's no, it's not there. And then all of a sudden it hits you like a hammer and like one moment just comes out of nowhere and I think what I did on Friday was just sat with it all afternoon went for a walk, sat with that stuff and I wrote and I did some deep breathing and I just looked after myself You know, lots of water, lots of calm and lots of accepting that yes it's okay to feel sad, you know it's okay to feel sad for that even if, even though it's something that I chose and that's what people don't understand, it's like well you chose it you I know, chose. I know you, therefore, don't have a right to feel sad about it. Right. And actually, it is sad. You know, I, I don't think I'll ever not feel sad about that relationship not working out. But I'm still grateful for what I can now give Mark as a friend and a co-parent and what I've, what I've learned for myself, what I can share with the children as well about how relationships can be in the world and how we can make more conscious choices about how we interact with everyone around us.
0: And it's is... really hard to teach that fully authentically if you haven't been through every stage of, you know, to, to your audience, to your kids, to the influence that you have in, in the world, um, if you haven't felt it from that heart perspective, yeah. you know, the, all the messy middles, right? Yeah, absolutely,
1: and it is messy, um, and I think it's very much... It's about celebrating that as well, about celebrating the messiness and say it is painful, it is complicated, it is chaotic, but actually it is all where the growth comes from. And the joy the joy that's on the other side of that is so light and pure that that's what I hold on to, those moments where I come out the other side and think, actually, you know what? I woke up Saturday morning feeling 100 times better. Yeah. Slept, you know, I felt and then I slept.
0: And there, you, there were so many good little bits of advice of things that people can try through, through, through what you've said, which, which I really appreciate. Um, and uh, it's sort of like Brené Brown's thing of like when we, don't, when we numb pain, we also numb joy. Absolutely. Well, you lose on both ends of the spectrum, don't you? You take
1: away the ability to go deep into your pain and your hurt that actually it stops you being able to really experience full joy and real pleasure. And I think, again, people often feel like, oh, I'm just safe here in the middle, not feeling too much. Yeah. But actually, that's a, it's a very sad, it's a very limiting way to live. And I think I get why people get stuck there. But if we're able to kind of tap into our pain in slow degrees, then we do get the, the joyful corollary is, you know, that pleasure, the real pleasure that's that
0: comes absolutely. and the real joy that comes on the other side of that. And I have flashes in the last two years since being divorced of sitting in my living room having just said goodbye to my kids who are now going to be at their dad's for a full week and the feeling of my entire lifetime of pain breaking my heart every time I left a house or a school or a person or like my life. Just like feeling like so I can feel that heap. And then the the flip side is I'll be walking down the street and just hear a song or connect to a person or be my full self in a conversation. And the joy just feeds through my entire body and the hopefulness of what the future and the experiences hold is like out of this world. So it's um, a little bit of a little bit of both, but totally worth it. Um, so
1: absolutely, absolutely. I think that's worth. You know, it can be, it can sound quite intimidating, quite overwhelming to sit with that much, sit with that much difficulty. But I think it absolutely. I wouldn't change it for the world. I wouldn't change those experiences because I know that you know there is so much joy on the other side of it. On the other
0: side of that, I I sometimes say to people or to myself, like I dare them to feel that that amount of joy, Um, and with that comes other things. But um, like I dare you to just live your life to the full, so that you can experience that level of joy.
1: Yeah, so I think actually one thing that the only thing we're scared of as much as we're scared of pain is scared of being happy. I think you know actually we're not. You know so many of us aren't really experienced in fully experiencing our joy and fully experiencing our pleasure um I've written recently about pleasure actually and how we've got a really problematic relationship with everyone says I want you to be happy
0: but actually um if you are people are somewhat annoyed because they're like oh I'm envious or that can't be real ha-. it's weird how society kind of
1: we've got a strange relationship with pleasure, especially in this country. I think there's kind of a very British, oh, one one can't be too happy.
0: (laughs) No, let's complain about the weather. Um, um, But also then pleasure. And I think I'm going to have to get you onto another podcast just to go into the rabbit hole of like women and pleasure and sexuality and just allowing ourselves to fully be ourselves. And, And we even talked about anger before we got on, like the full range of emotions is okay.
1: And about tapping into that and knowing that, you're allowed to feel those things I mean it's very much where too many of us I think are taught through our childhoods and unconsciously by the people that care for us that actually certain feelings aren't okay absolutely of my favorite stories from when the kids were small is being at a sing and sign class you know where they teach babies to kind of communicate by sign language and there was a woman there and we're going through the emotions and her daughter's on her lap and we get to the sign for anger and she literally crossed her arms like this and she said she doesn't need to learn how to say that Ooh! doesn't that just capture what's wrong I think that just captures a lot of what's wrong around parenting and around Conditioning. feeling. feeling our feelings yeah feeling Absolutely. our feelings and encouraging others to do the same
0: so um, I'm going to stop this rabbit hole because it could go forever and ever but um what are you looking forward to in the future I know you've got some books coming out you're you're working on so many things like what are you excited about moving forward
1: I tend to get excited about, um, about my work, but also increasingly at the moment, I, I look forward to, to not working. I think it's very easy to get caught up with this idea of producing, producing and producing content and being out there and being very visible, very active. But increasingly, I'm aware of the value of rest. Um, and I think winter's a great time for kind of reflecting on where we've been and what we're doing. And I'm trying to get better at taking things a bit more slowly. I've just sent um, the manuscript for book two off to my editor. And I think over the winter, I'm going to be working on a couple of other projects, but mostly just giving myself some space and time. Um, And I think that feels like a real gift that I need right now to give myself some space and time so that I can recharge and renew and also then think about managing my work and my life in a way that
0: doesn't feel like I'm repeating those old cycles of kind of busyness
1: it's trying to so protect.
0: easy. To, and work can be another addiction to get away from sitting with discomfort.
1: Sitting, yeah. Sitting with you know, sitting with myself um, and being a little bit calmer and a bit more present with all the things I have to do, whether that's my children or the writing or the community work. It's just trying to find a way of doing it all a bit more calmly so that it doesn't get done in a frantic way. It gets done in a way that feels a bit more kind of present and a bit more mindful
0: amazing and of course those are the things i need to hear today uh you know because i can get into the entrepreneurial busy busy like self-worth link to achievement
1: absolutely absolutely i think it's a very difficult thing to manage very difficult it's challenging
0: yeah so so that's my uh sort of intention for the day is to try and create a little bit of space um thank you so much for your wisdom and your time if people want to get in touch where can they find you I can be found at anitacassidy.uk. You can get in
1: touch with me through there. I'm also on Twitter, Cassidy 76 And yeah, I love to hear from people. So I love to hear stories. So do, do get in touch.
0: Amazing. I will add all that into the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. And we will have you on again if you'll have us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you